Father God, as we sit here this morning, as we stand here in your presence, Lord God, to worship you, to bow before you on our face, Father God, I ask that you would still our souls, creating us, Lord God, a backbone that can weather the storms of affliction because of the reproach that we have in you. Father God, you are with us on the mountaintops. You are with us in the valley, Lord God. And as we dive deep into our text this morning and we talk about the valley, Lord God, that we would see a richer reward, that we would recognize that the oppression, the persecution that we experience, Lord God, because of you is worth it in light of the great realities of what it is to be in relationship to you. Father God, so I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ right now, Lord God, that they would hear from your word, that they would be pierced through and through, Lord God, and that they would see you in all your glory, Lord God, and march ahead as a faithful follower and soldier. We love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, welcome this morning. Uh, we're in Matthew 5, so if you want to go ahead and turn in your scriptures, it's good to have you here. Uh, and uh, of all Sundays, this is the last family worship Sunday, and uh, my, the text that we land on is on persecution. So, here we go. It's going to be a, a deep dive. It's going to be a, a very, um, I'll, I'll say, um, difficult in the sense of what we experience, but beautiful in the realities of what Christ has planned for us as, as Christ followers. So if you're joining with us today for the first time, uh, welcome. Uh, here we go, right into it. And after the service today, if you want to dive deeper into the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes where we've been for the past eight weeks, uh, go ahead and look back over uh, the past sermons. That way you can catch up with us and, and know where we've been. So we've been walking through the Beatitudes, um, and what I want us to see first and foremost before we dive in is that, remember, this is one cohesive unit. It's to be seen not in separate parts because the tendency for us, right, is to identify with specific parts kind of based off of our personality, and that's not at all what Christ has in mind here. This is the picture, the ideal, the, 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 the actual person of who Christ is thinking about, the Christ follower. This is what he envisions uh, we should be. So we don't take it in part. We take it in whole in those strides. So we reach the final beatitude today. And my goal is to show you from the scriptures that this is not to be seen as Jesus just landing the plane on a Debbie Downer before he enters into the Sermon on the Mount, but that this culminates in everything that the Christ follower is to experience and to see, and that this is good for us. Structurally, this introduction known as the Beatitudes ends at, actually at verse 10, uh, and we'll carry on a little bit further into verse 12 because Jesus begins to actually give a little bit of commentary on the scripture itself uh, for us, um, because I think it's very important for us today. I think it's also important for us to recognize that this section is about the believer in Christ. Right, And what's the key term that we see here or phrase? Uh, it is that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If theirs is the kingdom of heaven, this refers to the people who acknowledge God as their king and who may therefore confidently look forward to the fulfillment of the purpose in their life. That there's a reason for this actual persecution. See, this is not a set of ideals for everyone. Many have tried to look at Christ 
or Christianity in this way, to use it as some type of behavior modification or, or, or moralistic way of living. They've even used this specific sermon as a set of ideals and principles that we should all aspire to as if we're like listening you know, to Gandhi or something. And that's not what the point of this sermon is. No church, this is for us. This is for the believer. The Beatitudes are to widen our gaze into the glorious reality that we are to, called to walk in, in Christ. And if we only see this thing as some type of moral behavior modification, guess what? You're going to be sorely disappointed. And this sermon this morning as we dive into this text is gonna rock you to your core because it's not gonna make sense. Let me review some terms for us. First off, the, the refrain over and over and over again through the text is blessed. And we've talked about this. This, of course, means happy, but in the context here, it means shown divine favor, right? Divine grace of the Lord on the person. And then for our text this morning, persecuted, which is the systematic harassment because of one's religious belief. And we know this, the call to follow Christ has always been the call to come and die. Luke 9, 23 through 24 says, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, that thing that was meant for destruction daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever would lose his life for my sake will save it. This is what needs to frame our text this morning. It's not the feel-good message of come to Jesus and just get all your wants met or come to Jesus and, do, you know, and he'll deliver you from whatever it is that you're going through at the moment but not ask you to change. It's not a feel-good message that the prosperity gospel is promoting to you. No, church, the call to follow the Lord will exact a great cost. But like the parable Jesus told his disciples of the man who found a great treasure in the field and he went and sold everything to buy that field. And when he bought the field, we need to recognize that the, the treasure in the field outweighed anything that he could have ever put on the, on the scene. And the field represents for us the kingdom of heaven. See, the reward to follow Christ far outstrips anything we could ever give up in this life. Do you believe that this morning, church? Is Christ your everything? Because if he is not, when persecution comes knocking on your door, and it will according to Christ, then what will you do? Will you turn away from him, or will you remain true? The, tr the goal in our time this morning is to face the reality that the world is not our home. And while we continue to sojourn here, we will face opposition from the world. We see this in verse 10, right? Read with me. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the main idea this morning is all believers will experience some form of persecution throughout their life because of their relationship to Christ. Now remember, the persecution we're speaking about is because of or it stems from our relationship or belief in Christ. So I, I do want to take a moment. I want to distinguish something for you because this is not talking about the, the oppression that many of my brothers and sisters face on a daily basis. What we're talking about here is not uh, the oppression because of your skin color or your ethnicity. See, as I'm working through this text, I do not want you to think that I'm diminishing your experiences personally. They are real. And for anyone who has experienced prejudice or injustice because of your race or ethnicity, I am sorry for the wrongs that you have experienced. They are truly wrong and they are truly evil. But the truth is, 
someone can experience all of those wrongs and still be separate from Christ, to still not be found in him. And that to me is a greater travesty for in Christ, he can hold you up firmly founded in your faith in him. In him, he can and will take all the suffering and give you joy. That is the beautiful news of the gospel. We give him our brokenness and he gives us his righteousness and makes us new in him and calls us his own. No, the specific persecutions we're dealing with this morning are akin to those Nigerian pastors right now, even today, who are continually being abducted, right, for ransom money. Many times they are being killed before, they're, before, they're, before the ransom comes in, all because of their faith in Christ. I'm talking about all those in Afghanistan who have boldly held on to their Savior and not renounced their faith in Christ to the Taliban, only to face heavy fines and further persecution. At times, they're losing their homes or their lives. I'm talking about anyone who has faced penalties, fines, mispromotions, let go from jobs, overlooked in the workplace, falsely accused, and other hardships because of their relationship to Jesus. And as we'll see this morning, none of their suffering goes in vain. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteous sake, for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The persecution of the righteous will not go unnoticed by God. Verse 10. As I said earlier, this marks the final beatitude and the conclusion to the introduction on the Sermon on the Mount. And we'll dive into the rest of the text next week. And we see the same refrain from verse three, verse three and verse 10, right? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this marks a completion in a series of descriptions that show what a believer should look like as they walk out their faith in the world. It is a promise to the believer that their inheritance is awaiting so that we do not lose heart when the final description is realized in our lives today. For it is a package deal. And as such, this should sum up the Christian experience. Those who are poor in spirit will mourn over their sin. They're, they will be weak, meek and humble. They will strive for righteousness. They will showcase mercy. They will grow in purity. They will be peacemakers as we learned last week. And the result of all of this action is persecution for their lives lived out in righteousness. D.A. Carson comments on this passage so well. He says, just as a person must be poor in spirit to enter the kingdom, so will he be persecuted because of righteousness if he is to enter the kingdom. This final beatitude becomes one of the most searching of all of them and binds up the rest. For if the disciple of Jesus never experiences any persecution at all, it may fairly be asked where righteousness is being displayed in his life. If there is no righteousness, no conformity to God's will, how shall he enter the kingdom? Therefore, those that seek to live godly lives will experience difficulty from this world in some form. It's guaranteed. Yet the greater reality for the believer lands in the fact that Jesus here calls us blessed. You are blessed. Again, you are receiving the divine grace of the Lord on your life. See, whatever the persecution may be in our lives, it's overwhelmed by the fact that God has shown us his grace and rescues us from his wrath and divine punishment. Rightly understood, no persecution even comes close to the righteous judgment of our God. Nothing. However, before we move on, we must recognize what type of persecution is to be seen as drawing the Lord's favor, right? The only persecution that is blessed by the Lord stems from our allegiance to Jesus and living in conformity with his standards. True persecution is coming because we look like Jesus. We waft his fragrant life uh, around us so that that world actually turns and notices 
right? In a real sense, the righteous living evokes a response from the watching world. It's either gonna be repentance where they turn to Christ or it's gonna be acting out in rage as they try to destroy us. This is the common theme throughout the scriptures. Righteous men and women will face a response from the world and most times this is so that they can give what? Testimony to the Lord and his faithfulness. Peter talks about this when he's writing to those that are suffering. He says, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? That should be the standard, but it's not. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, right, he's quoting Jesus here, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. I love how people misquote this all the time. The context here is because they are suffering. They are suffering persecution from the hands of people. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. They'll be shamed because of their actions. But it is better to suffer for good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The good news of the gospel is that you and I were saved to bear witness of our Savior and Lord, even if that should come through our suffering. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my fear, Fear not the reproach of men or be dismayed in their revilings, Isaiah 51, seven. So what is the moral of the story? You're not being persecuted because you're an obnoxious person and you love to constantly thump people with scriptures all the time out of context and you're just annoying. You're not being persecuted. You're not being persecuted because your religious beliefs, right, hinder you from doing a good job at your work. Right When in fact the exact opposite should be true, you should actually be the best worker there as a testimony to the Lord, right? You do all things to the glory of the Lord. You're not being persecuted because you made some dumb comment on a social media platform or you were acting stupid and somebody took a video of you and you now have a, a, you're, you got a bunch of critics on there because of your actions. You are not being persecuted. The true persecution is coming because of who you are in Christ. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, right? The persecution of the righteous will come because of our relationship to Christ, point two. This is why the apostle Paul, when speaking about this to the Galatian church, uses the example of Sarah and Hagar and compares, right, the two lines of Abraham, one from the slave woman and one from the, the woman of promise. Um, and this is in Christ, and by the nature of the birth of these children of the, the slave will always persecute the, the child of promise. And we see this in Galatians 4.21, it says, but just as at the time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. John MacArthur reflects on this further. He says, nothing has changed. We will get along terrifically if nobody ever finds out we're Christians. But as we begin to live the Christian life, as we begin to manifest the Beatitudes, as we share the reproach of Jesus Christ, as we participate in the fellowship of his sufferings, and as we live righteously in the world, we will find that the sons of the flesh will always persecute the ones born of the Spirit. Paul and the other New Testament authors were not the only ones to lay out this reality. Jesus clearly, this is a point of his ministry over and over and over again, 
From the beginning to the end, we see this as Christ, does it, as Christ predicts our persecutions. We see this after he sends out the 12. This is right at the beginning of his ministry. He's just, for, he's just called them out to follow after him. And then he sends them out into the, the villages. And then he gives uh, what is uh, a prophecy looking forward to believers. He says, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts, flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death. The father, his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated for all my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciples to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, Satan, how much more will they malign those of the household? We see this near the end of his ministry, right? When he's calling out, when he's praying for the disciples just before he goes to the cross. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master, reflecting back on his earlier teaching. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of whose name? Jesus' name. Is it your name? No, Christ, because they do not know him who sent me. Finally, we see this when Jesus predicts the future, right? Which encapsulates all that we experience today. For nations will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains for us. Then they will deliver you up to the tribulation and put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will actually grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. The promise is wrapped up right in the middle of the persecution. So in other words, Christ has not given us a cushiony gospel, has he? It's not a feel-good message. He has laid out the terms for us in detail, and the cost to follow him is great, but completely worth anything we could experience this side of heaven. No slanderous word, no false accusation, no physical suffering can compare to our reward in heaven. The cross, an instrument of torture, represents for the believer the promise that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The persecution of the righteous will evoke worship and hope. Now I'm going to take a moment. I understand that we have family worship here, so I have some little ears in here. And I'm going to lay out for you a description of the persecution that Christians have faced for a long time leading up into that first century. 
So some of it's going to be descriptive. So I leave that up to you, wise parents. Uh, if you think that your children are old enough to listen to this, I'm not going to be vulgar or anything like that, but there is some descriptions of how Christians have died over the centuries, and it's rough. So if you feel it necessary, go ahead and plug your ears or say earmuffs you know, while, we, while we go through this section. But what I want to do in order to understand the worship that these Christians uh, elicited in the midst of suffering, I want to lay out the reality of suffering in total. Persecution has been the normal Christian experience throughout history, and it continues on. Because I'm afraid really here in North America, it's been decades, right, since we have faced direct opposition to our faith on the scale that some experience even now in other parts of the world. I do believe that that's actually changing. I do believe that we're seeing further and further ways that uh, Christians are being persecuted in our own context. Um, but by and large, you're not worried about somebody come knocking down your door because you're a Christ follower. But this is not new. From the beginning of the church, she has faced persecution after persecution because of her birthright in Jesus. So let me take you on, on, on a journey with me. First off, we begin in the Old Testament. We see the saints... Uh, the Old Testament saints knew persecution just like, like any Christian should. First, reflect over Job, which is one of the oldest book. James looks back to Job as an example. He says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful, Right? Job experienced lengthy accusations by those that, quote, that were supposed to be his friends, right? They examined his life and they falsely accused him of sinning. And he faced ridicule after ridicule after ridicule until the Lord is his safe place and the Lord redeems Job. Think about Moses. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews reflects on Moses' life. He says, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward. Look at that, beautiful. And not only would Pharaoh's family be the one that would oppress him, but even the people of God, those that weren't following after the Lord, submitted to the Lord, would, face would persecute Moses as well. Think of the countless other Old Testament saints that we just don't even know about. Hebrews reflects on them as well. He says, others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They, were, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. These are the countless untold numbers and myriads of saints who faithfully followed the Lord. We may not know their names, but the Lord knows them intimately. Intimately. Where? Where do you see these saints that were martyred in the book of Revelation? Go ahead, participate. Go ahead, give me a guess. Oh, they're in heaven, no doubt. Where? Underneath the throne. The book of Revelation records that the throne, up underneath the throne comes a myriad of those killed in Christ's name over the centuries, over the eons. And they cry out. And guess what that represents for the martyrs? closeness with the father, the further to the throne you are, the closer you are to the father and they are up underneath the throne. 
They are as close as they possibly can be to the one Savior who loves them, who is cared, caring for them, who is taking them into their own. I love it. They are known. New Testament apostles talk about persecution for their faith. Paul talks about this in the, in the passage that even Brandon referenced this morning. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. He actually lays those out in 1 Corinthians to the Corinthian church. He says, what kinds of things happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a reality. While evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Paul, the faithful writer of the majority of the New Testament, would endure countless persecution throughout his ministry. Peter would, te would tell us that, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed to you. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of God and of uh, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in the name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will it be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if righteous is, righteous is scarcely saved, what will happen of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will do what? Entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So what happened to these apostles as they talked about persecution? What happened to them specifically? What happened to all these first disciples, right, that we see in Acts that the 3,000 that initially came to faith in the Lord? Well, thankfully, some have done some research, right? And we've looked back through history and we have accounts. John Fox in the 1500s sought to compose an accounting of all of these records and he systematically, uh, of the systematic persecution that believers faced up until the Reformation. So right there in the first century, we'll walk through every single one of these disciples and what they faced. Stephen, beginning with them, which breaks out the persecution against Christians, we know from Acts, right? He's stoned to death. James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded and what you may not know is that as recorded by Clemens of Alexandrinus, as they were leading James away for execution, his, um, his accuser actually repented and trusted in Christ and chose to die alongside James. So as he's going to his death, ushered in another follower of Christ who was welcomed into glory. Philip was scourged, thrown in prison and crucified, AD 54. Matthew was slain by a halberd in the city of Nataba in AD 60. James, the brother of Jesus, at the age of 94, was beaten, stoned by the Jews, and finally had his brains dashed out by a fuller's club. Matthias was stoned in Jerusalem and then beheaded. Andrew was crucified in Edessa with the two ends transfixed into the ground. Mark was dragged to pieces by the people of Alexandria. Peter, Jerome records that he was crucified upside down because Peter refused to be crucified as the same form as Jesus. Paul, tradition holds that he was beheaded in Rome. Jude was crucified in Edessa, AD 72. Bartholomew was cruelly beaten and crucified somewhere in India. Thomas was speared to death by pagan priests in India. Luke was supposed to have been hanged on an olive tree by pagan priests in Greece. Simon the Zealot was crucified in Britain, AD 74. 
And John was sentenced to death by being boiled alive in oil. Note to self, he survived miraculously somehow. And then he was exiled to the island of Patmos where we get the final book of Revelation. What's the point of all of this accounting? Why tell you the destruction of saints before you? Because the last point today is so important for the believer. These persecutions are to drive you, drive you to worship. John Stock comments about the rejoicing. He says, how did Jesus expect his disciples to react under persecution? Rejoice and be glad. We are not to retaliate like an unbeliever. We're not to sulk like a child. We're not to lick our wounds in self-pity like a dog, nor just to grin and bear it like a stoic, still less to, be, to pretend we enjoy it like a masochist. What then? We are to rejoice as a Christian should rejoice and even to leap for joy. That's Luke 6, 23 that he's quoting there. Church, we are not of this world. That is why we gather each week in what we call a worship service to give praise to our wonderful Savior who calls us to a deep and abiding faith that can stand against anything the world could possibly throw at us. Beloved, what can this world do to you? They can only harm your body. So we wait expectantly for the Lord's final deliverance where his promises far exceed anything that we can experience here. His reward is great and awaiting us as we are ushered into his presence. But don't even think that that's it because surely the Lord has stuff in store for us right here, right now. And of course he does. So what are some of the benefits of suffering? I'm gonna go a little John Piper on you. I'm gonna give you five reasons. It's not it, there's plenty of others, but five reasons for your suffering. One thing that it does is it produces steadfastness, right? James 1, 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let not steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, right? It builds endurance. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering does what? Produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We become stronger. Paul writing to the Corinthians, right? Talking about all of his suffering, right? For the sake of Christ then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then what we are? We are strong. It loosens our hold on the world and Lord knows we need it. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had what? A better possession and an abiding one. Finally, I can't think of no better reason than we have confidence in our salvation. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, 
but of your salvation and that of God. For it, is, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for the sake, for his sake. Think about this church. Think about the realities here. I didn't go to this in the first service, but think about Acts, right? When Peter and the other apostles were persecuted right there at the beginning, right? What did it say that they did after they were beaten? How did they leave? Were their tails tucked between their legs? Were they mourning and they're sad? They rejoiced to know that they had been counted worthy to experiencing the suffering of Christ, to share in the suffering of Christ. So how do we apply this today? I have three questions for you to kind of leave you with. You have a bunch more to, to get into in your community groups uh, as you engage with discussion, and I'm sure it's gonna be a hot one. Um, but three questions. Are you experiencing persecution because of your faith or just punishment because of your sinful actions? See, the world should experience the difference in our lives, which will elicit a response from them. We've already talked about that but let it not be from merely responding like them and, and seeing the world in the same situation, right? We face the sufferings of this life with a much greater hope than mere relief from a burden. We experience suffering, right, because of our relationship to Christ. And if you're just uh, sinning, that's not persecution. That's you facing the, the, the punishment for your sins, right? You're, 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 getting, you're getting your just due there. How often are you praying for those who would be your persecutors? Where are your hearts turned to the next one? Remember the seedbed of the gospel, right, is born out in your suffering. Your suffering. The point of our suffering is to give an accounting to the grace of the Lord. See, it's our public witness and the pouring out of our blood that is the sowing of the seeds of the next generation of believers. That's the reason why, if you didn't notice that in the counting, recognize where all the disciples were, the original apostles. Where were they? They were all over the world being persecuted. Already in the first century, already in the first decades of the Christian faith, they're already spread out all over the place. Persecuted for the gospel, for the good news, it's going forward and it will continue to go forward. Ringing in your ears should be the promises of Christ. The gates of hell will not overcome his bride. Not once. Therefore, pray for our accusers. Beseech the throne room of the Lord to give you another and another and another. Bring in the sheep. How are you growing in worship because of the challenges to your faith? Are you letting your circumstances define you or are you allowing the Lord to define your circumstances? Remember, child of God, he has ordered your days, numbered the hairs on your head, gave you the breath to glorify him, so worship him with all that you are. Trust that he will not waste one moment of your suffering and persecution to gather his sheep into the fold. Know that the reason why we can worship is because a far greater place awaits us where we will be with our savior forever. So I want you to close your eyes for a moment and we'll end on this. I wanna close with a, with a picture in your mind of what awaits us. And this quote's gonna come from The Lord of the Rings. I love it. Some of you guys are like, yes. And I'm talking about the books, not the movie. So don't get confused. Um, and this quote is actually coming from Frodo, not Gandalf, which the movie got wrong. 
But in the return of the king, Frodo, at the end of all things, right, the ring's been destroyed and order has been restored, but Frodo's heart is still broken because he needed further healing and he needed to go to the heavenly realm. He leaves with the elves and sets sail for this faraway land. And here's his accounting. And the ship went out into the high seas and passed into the west until at last on a night of rain, Frodo smelled a sweet fragrance on the air and heard the sound of singing that came over the water. And then it seemed to him that as in the dream that in the house of Bombadil, the gray rain curtain turned all to silver glass and was rolled back and he beheld white shores and beyond them a far green country under a swift sunrise. Father God, we await a far greater country than we are currently in. We await the heavenly realm, Lord God, where the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven and you are with your people forever. We dream of the day that the scales are removed from our eyes and we see you when this whole world is rolled up like a scroll and everything becomes new. Then our suffering and our persecutions will only seem, as Peter says, like light momentary afflictions because we behold your face. We're gonna be like Job when he sees your glory. He can't help but worship. Oh Lord, we long for that day. When we see you, and while we're in our waiting, Lord God, may Psalm 23 be ever before us that you are with us in the valley and your rod and your staff that guide us. Heavenly Father, make yourself known to this people. Burden our hearts, Lord God. Burden our hearts to worship you. We give you this time.